Ah, smell that? That's new podcast smell. Welcome to Hero Hero Go Show, a podcast all about Asian horror cinema and a celebration of cultures that have given the cinematic community some of the most gut-wrenching, head-scratching, and all-around glorious horror films ever made. I hope you'll enjoy celebrating movies you already like, find a few you haven't heard of, and maybe even gain a new appreciation for movies you thought you knew. So with all that said, it's time to get weird. Come on in. Welcome to Hero Hero Go Show. That is Cantoy. I am Bo Ransdell, your podcasting tour guide through the world of Asian horror cinema. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, right out of the gate, I want to make it clear, I'm not an expert, okay? I don't speak Japanese or Korean or Thai. I haven't traveled to any of said exotic lands. I am, however, an enthusiast, uh, a fan, if you will of a unique brand of horror filmmaking that has been incredibly influential in both my enjoyment of horror movies and the very direction of horror movies in the West. And we're not starting small. We are tackling head-on one of a pair of films that redefine modern horror. Along with Hideo Nakata's Ringu, Takashi Miyuki's audition hit the horror community like a revelation. The two movies were sort of a one-two punch, if you will. Uh, Audition is a film that married striking visuals and color with some of the most stomach-turning imagery depicted in cinema thus far. Audition was first released in Japan in 2000, made its way to the United States, where I am, in 2001. The movie functions as both a psychological allegory and a visceral and cringeworthy horror film. Here with me to decide which it is, my first guest is the creator, the producer, the host of the podcast Under the Stairs, the Euro Horror Series Chronicle, and is my co-host on Duncan and Bo Come Correct, which are available on legionpodcast.com and at tputzcast.com. That is T-P-U-T-S-Cast.com. He is one of the smartest horror minds I know, and managed to become a husband and father along the way. He is the wily, the irascible, the barely intelligible Duncan McLeish. Welcome to the first episode of Hero Hero Go Show. Duncan, take a bow and tell me what did I get wrong? <laughs> First, let me see. Hajirimashite, Duncan Dezu, Dozo Yurushku. Oh, konnichiwa. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I did actually learn Japanese a long... Well, I learned some Japanese a long time ago. Um, unlike yourself, I have actually been to Japan. I went to Tokyo in 2008. Um, and uh, that was... Fucking amazing. Uh, yeah, I am incredibly proud to be here on this debut episode of Hero Hero Go Show. Um, and I, I mean, it was a, it was almost academic when the titles for the movies were flung around and audition came up. It was almost preordained that, you know, I had to be on this show to discuss it. And the fact that you've come out, I, I mean, you are aware that you're starting off your look at Asian horror cinema with arguably one of the most important Asian horror cinemas ever. Yeah, yeah, I'm very aware of that. And in fact, we did uh, an impromptu poll on the uh, the old uh, Facebook page. 
And uh, I'll give that address out at the end of the show. So uh, please come by, join the conversation. We're having a good time over there. Um, Yeah, and I was surprised that Audition in that environment, in that poll, did not do very well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because people will see Audition once. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And they think at that point, like, I get it. I I know what audition is and part of me doesn't need to see it again. And the other part of me is scratching my head a little bit because there is some very surreal imagery in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, As promised to someone in the Facebook group, uh, I will use the term slow burn right here. Um, (laughs) The movie is the, the movie takes its time to get where it's going. I, I think very deliberately and, uh, yeah, it's, it is one of the big, the big ones, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, it was sort of this in Ringu mm-hmm. that came along and made people wonder what the hell is going on in the East. Circa 2000, 2001, um, I was employed in a video store. Uh, I was a manager of my, my, my very own video store, uh, for a large chain of video stores in the UK. And... That was about the same time that both movies came out on VHS for for, um, home rental. And I actually saw Audition before Ringu, or as it was known in the UK, it was just known as Ring then. But Audition genuinely, and I, I, I mean, I was a seasoned horror fan at that point. But 2001 was like an incredibly important year in the UK anyway, because that was the time when movies like Cannibal Holocaust were finally coming off the video nasties list um, and could be rented, albeit still cut in places. But it, it was one of those years which really kind of shaped my my kind of my, my horror cinema viewing experiences beyond that, because whilst a lot of people consider you know, like Cannibal Holocaust or Faces of Death, you know, these sort of movies as a rite of passage. Audition, to me, is the rite of passage. Um, whilst, you know, the, the torture and animal violence in a movie like Holocaust is, you know, is, is incredibly unsettling and, and disgusting at the same time, it doesn't make my stomach drop out my arse <laughs> quite like watching Audition does. Um, Audition's one of these movies where, and I, I can't wait to get, into talking about it because I think you've said like people watch it and they have an idea of you know what audition is. I would kind of hypothesize that people may miss quite a lot of what actually is going on on audition and focus purely on that last twenty minutes, fifteen minutes of the movie, and miss a lot of what the movie is actually trying to do. Um, and it's put forward by one of the great directors of Asian horror cinema and uh, Takashi Miki who <laughs> in the same year he did Audition did uh, directed two other films, two TV movies and a TV miniseries all in that year um, so I mean the guy's work ethic is incredible but Audition's the one that puts him on the map and really solidifies him as one of the greats since someone like, for example, uh, for example, Kuro, Kurosawa, um, to make an impact on the West, um, and since then, I mean, your show is going to cover so many movies that would have only had the the recognition purely off the back of the work paved by audition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 
you know, we'll we'll discuss Miyuki more on the back end, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It it's a significant movie and that's why I wanted to start with it because again, it's it's something that people know and even if you've never seen it, you've heard about it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a horror fan, you know the guy in the bag and the bowl of vomit and yeah. and severed feet. Um <laughs> so uh if you haven't seen the movie before, um, I encourage you to watch it before listening to this episode, although this episode, uh, I, I feel like will serve as a bit of a compendium <laughs> to a viewing of, of Audition. Um, so let's get into it. Aud- audition is, uh, it's the story of a, a fairly unassuming guy um, named Ayama. Um, he is a, a producer, uh, a television and, and, and film editor or producer. Um, he is... Uh, attending the death of his wife. In fact, the film opens with images of, uh, of their son rushing with, uh, what I presume to be a gift, uh, for his mother, um, to the hospital room. He's a little bit too late because nothing good ever happens to anybody in this movie. And, uh, we instead find, uh, Aoyama, very difficult name to say, um, (laughs) Shrugged against the the bedside of his now dead wife, uh, Ryoko, and then we we flash forward uh, after the those events, and uh, Aoyama has not uh, has not remarried, is living um, you know a fairly decent life for sure, but is his son broaches the subject really, and says like dad. You know what you ought to do. I want. I want to see you happy. You seem. You seem distracted. You seem disgruntled. You seem out of sorts. You should think about getting remarried. And I posit, Duncan, that it's really his son's fault. Uh, <laughs> the events of the film. Uh, whatever you make of those, but yeah, I think I think his his shitty kid is probably the source of all this. <laughs> As a as a as a cultural thing, uh, which once again we will we will touch upon, um, in that the the position the the sexual equality in in Japan is still not necessarily as equal as it is in some Western countries, and this idea of basically uh, his father being. Uh, exhausted, worn down, disgruntled. This idea that, you know, basically if you, if you put a, a good woman behind him, um, it will make everything better is very much a, a Japanese sort of um, cultural idea. But yes, if we're looking at it on paper, his shitty kid is, <laughs> um, is basically, yeah, he ruined everything. Well done, yeah. shitty kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, well done, kid. Um, and and you know, it, it's hard to discuss because it is, it, it's true what you're saying about uh, sort of. I, I mean, let's just say it. There, there is an element of misogyny that exists in a lot of Asian cinema, Japanese cinema in particular. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to talk about some of those those movies on this show. I don't necessarily know that audition falls neatly into a category of misogyny, um, but we'll we'll yeah, we'll get we'll, into we'll, interpretation yeah, yeah. on the back end. But yeah. Aoyama's kid says, uh, "You know, you ought to get married." Um, Aoyama is also 
in the midst of uh, developing a show called uh, Tomorrow's Star, in which um, <laughs> the titular audition will be held to select the leading lady for a production. And it's really kind of his buddy uh, Yoshikawa who is saying, like, I this is really a great idea. So what you're going to do is you're going to bring a bunch of potential uh, <laughs> potential girlfriends into this room. You're going to have their, their headshots and resumes ahead of time. So you're going to go through them. You're going to select the, the top, um, what was it, 100. <laughs> and we're going to audition them. We're going to bring them into the room. We're going to chat with them. And then you're going to select from the women that we're auditioning, um, you know, the, the, the woman for you, the right lady, uh, which is undeniably a skeezy plan. Mm -hmm. It is, it is at the very least dishonest. Um, and at worst leads to bowls of vomit. <laughs> and, and so we, <laughs> while we're in the movie, uh, Aoyama, um, it, it ends up, you know, getting this, this collection of headshots and starts pouring through them. Right. Mm -hmm. And is, it, it has been told by Yoshikawa, don't just look at the headshot. Like the headshot, you, you might find a pretty lady and all, but you need to read the essays. The essays are going to tell you who these people are. And so he very notably, um, spins the, the picture of his, uh, his wife around on his desk as he's doing this. Uh, he doesn't want to look Ryoko in the eye mm -hmm. as he's selecting a replacement for her. And then we have an interesting scene as he's, as he's sifting through all the, uh, the applications and headshots and whatnot that his son comes in and his son has found himself a lady himself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, you know, young, a very traditional representation of the Japanese schoolgirl. She's very demure and smiling and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the Aoyama, uh, meets her and, you know, kind of gives his, his son a, a good job kid kind of look. And I only mention that because later on we're going to have more discussion about the, uh, the girlfriend, um, in a less, you know, pristine state. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you handled that very tactfully. Yeah, I'm I'm trying because things are going to get gnarly. Uh, so uh, he ends up being very attracted to uh, the essay written by uh, a lady named Asami, mm -hmm. and she is uh, was a, uh, a ballet dancer and had problems with her hips, can't dance anymore. And her essay is the gloomiest shit you'll ever read. Where it's it's all about like you know I think I understand what death is now because that was really the death of my life as I knew it and then I had to move on and and dealing with that kind of loss really changed things and even in her essay she's like you know what I don't expect you like a very self defeating uh, lady is uh, Asami uh, and she says you know I I really don't expect to be picked. I just feel like I have something that I could bring to the role because of all this dark, tortured pain in my past. And uh, Aoyama is like, you know what? This sounds like the girl for me. Mm -hmm. I think that you kind of hit the point, though. I think the reason he is like attracted to her is that he himself has been through great pain and loss, not of a dancing career, but 
from his wife passing away. Um, so I think that's what springs the attraction on, is that he's not exactly happy with the way life is going. She's not exactly happy either, and they're kindred spirits. Yeah, yeah. And in fairness, Aoyama is not does not come across as a horrible person. Oh, no, definitely not. On, on the upfront. Um, no. Ultimately, he's talked into doing the auditions for for a girlfriend. He's kind of pushed by not only his son telling him that he has to find, you know, he should go and find a, a, a new wife, but uh, his friend is the one that has basically kind of set up this whole scheme, so to speak, that even even when he is doing, the, you know, he doesn't, like for the first few auditions, he doesn't speak to anyone. It, it barely makes eye contact. He's not very comfortable with, with the scenario at all, and I think that speaks to his nature. Yeah, yeah, he's he is very quiet up until yes, uh, Asami enters, and it's very clear that he has been anticipating this this audition in particular. Yeah, he's and, a smitten kitten. Yeah, he is a smitten kitten. Yeah, uh, uh, not. Kitten, not a word I, I normally associate with audition, but you're exactly right. Uh, <laughs> that's why you're the first guest, Duncan. You're so smart. Um, so we've got, you know, the, the, their first meeting. Uh, Aoyama is now piping up and, and asking a lot of questions. And Asami, you know, responds with, again, very demure, very what you think of a traditional uh, Japanese woman is exactly how she seems. In fact, the mm-hmm. word docile is used a couple of times uh, to describe not just Asami, but um, is used by Yoshikawa to describe the ideal Japanese woman, right? Mm-hmm. That she's, yeah. you know, she's docile and pretty and all this. So it's, like you said, it's very, it's very tricky coming from the West to, to really appreciate, I think, um, the dark turns that audition takes because there is, you know, our, our experience with women, especially in the post, you know, women's liberation, liberation movement and so forth in the West, um, you know, women are, are, are seen as strong and they can do whatever they want. And, you know, all, all the stuff that you, you think as a Westerner is the right way to view women. And that doesn't necessarily translate. Um, to uh, an Eastern or a Japanese view of, of women in marriage and that kind of thing. Yeah, certainly they wouldn't be um, the, for example, um, in Scotland, for, for international listeners, uh, in Scotland are equivalent to what would be a prime minister in Scotland and the Scottish Parliament as a woman. Um, and of the the opposition parties that are in the same uh, political house as her, of those four opposition parties, uh, an additional two of the main parties are led by women. So, you know, that's not the sort of thing you would see in a country like Japan. It's, it's very male, male-orientated, male industry, male big business, you know, these sort of things. Um, even your traditional things that you would associate with women um, in the West, job-wise, are done by men in Japan. So it's... Uh, that's just the way the culture is. So yeah, like you say, from I I imagine once again we'll get onto and I know we don't want to jump too far ahead. I imagine that the the end of this movie having far more, even though it has a huge impact on the West, 
because we really hadn't seen anything like this. Um, I imagine that it would be doubly, if not triply, more effective to a Japanese man watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something about female empowerment, and you, and we'll see this in a number of films that we discuss. That female empowerment can be threatening, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but uh, so the audition goes well, and and um, it is now, you know, up to uh, Aoyama to make contact, and he he does. Uh, he reaches out to Asami and they end up, uh, having, um, you know, a date, uh, you know, they meet a couple of times and, and there's Yoshikawa tells him at a certain point, like you need to chill, mm-hmm. right? You gotta, you gotta hold off on, on calling her too much. It's, it's inappropriate. And also you don't know that much about her yet. Uh, that's really the big warning is, you, you know, like you're. And even his son, uh, Aoyama's son, is kind of scolds his father at one point in the film uh, for being a bit love blind. Yes, uh, as well, and and maybe that's true. But uh, um, you know, Aoyama does feel some guilt over using the audition to to meet women. You know, he he basically says he feels uh, guilty. Um, in fact, uh, the direct line is, "I feel like a criminal." Yes. Um, in, in doing such a thing. Uh, but they end up, uh, Aoyama and Asami, uh, meet for a date. Um, during this date, we, we get the first sense of, uh, Asami's background, mm-hmm. uh, which she says was, you know, aside from the, the loss of, uh, her, her ability to dance, which was very important to her. Um, you know, she has a, a fairly normal upbringing. Her, her parents live away, but, um, they're not, yeah, they're not super close, but they're close enough, you know, normal family. And she's, you know, making ends meet by working at a bar. Um, when Aoyama, uh, proposes that maybe he come visit her at work. Um, instead, uh, she, she says, she doesn't tell him no, but she definitely says, look, my boss is kind of nosy. And if you come around it, it, basically causes some static for me. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, Asami never uses the word static in the film. Um, which which she should, quite frankly. But, um, but we also, during this date, uh, we, there's a, a more serious sense of, like, well, things are maybe not totally right. Um, because we start to see some weird jump cuts in this scene. Mm-hmm. And one of the more interesting moments to me is that we also have a moment where as they're having this discussion, you hear traffic going on and they, they start to talk about the tomorrow star thing. And Aoyama does not come clean. Duncan, he doesn't tell the truth. He does not no. Yeah, well, he he uses the old um, listen. It kind of looks like the financing has fallen through, so it may not happen for a while. In fact, if I'm honest, it may not happen at all now. Um, so yeah, you shouldn't feel bad about it because you know it may never happen now. Where he has the opportunity to be honest with her, he he turns his back on that that opportunity, and instead, as you said, uh, just uses the old producer line here. Um, yeah. Not cool, Aoyama, as it turns out. 
<laughs> yeah, he, he does. He does something which it, it's it's self-serving, really. He does. He tells her a lie that he knows will be acceptable to her. That kind of sounds like something that might happen in the industry. She probably won't know too much about that this sort of industry, so she's not going to question it too much. And it kind of gets him off the hook and doesn't make her feel like she has failed the audition. Which ultimately she does think that's what's happened. She's surprised that, um, you know, he had, he's spending time with her because she genuinely doesn't think, you know, that her 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 uh, piece of writing that Shandian was good enough or her audition was all that great either. Yeah, and <laughs> we also we would be remiss, Duncan, if we did not mention that. Prior to this, we have the the infamous uh, bag scene. Yeah, the bag scene. The first time I saw this movie, the bag scene legitimate, legitimately made me scream out the words, "Oh fucking Christ!" Um, which I am not a religious person. I don't believe in Jesus Christ, um, and I don't tend to have involuntary Tourette's. Um, but this scene kicked it in because uh, it's worth saying that up until this point this movie does what actually what a lot of Japanese movies do which deal with you know romance is it's very carefree very eerie and very whimsical um, and then you get this scene out of nowhere and from that point onwards the pans get a bit sweaty it's, you're a bit uncomfortable in chair because you, you it's, it's like watching Seven Instead of shouting what's in the box, you want to know what's in the bag. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's pretty fascinating because you not only do you get the bag scene, but the, I think the lead up to it is almost creepier. Yeah. Of uh, Asami sitting by the phone waiting for Aoyama to call her. And we get a couple of these. And when the phone finally rings, she gets this smile that is... Um, I would compare it to the smile on, on the face of the gentleman in a field in England when it <laughs> comes out of the tent where it's like that smile can't be good. Yeah. It's there not is a natural smile. Yeah. There, there is something real, real troublesome afoot. Yeah. Uh, have you, you know, by any intended. chance, have you by any chance stolen Christmas? Miss Grinch? <laughs> right, yeah. Right. It, is, it is a very Grinchian sort of smile. Yes, so we get her Grinchity grin, and then the lump uh, in the burlap sack um, topples over mm-hmm. uh, of its own accord, and we understand for the first time, you know, as you said, oh, Jesus Christ, there is something alive in that bag, and it yeah. is person-sized. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't want to jump to conclusions, Duncan, but... Yeah, well, I'm just... Gonna put out there that no good has ever come from a bag which could be potentially containing something person size that basically flips over itself when a phone rings. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that's not a good thing. Uh, I'm fairly sure that that is. Yes, yeah. as a rule, no, that is not. <laughs> there exceptions to every rule, but <laughs> if if you're in that situation, the the smart money is on get out. Um, <laughs> But uh, Aoyama is uh, undeterred. He, of course, he doesn't know uh, about the man in the bag, or does he? We'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
he ends up uh, pursuing marriage. Like, he basically says, yeah, I'm going to ask her to marry me. It's a very short courtship. Um, so they go to uh, kind of a, a weekend getaway sort of affair. And in their hotel room, uh, it's, you know, Aoyama's kind of talking about, well, we could go to, there's a, a museum nearby and there's a great chef here and we can go to dinner in a little bit. And meanwhile, uh, Asami is disrobing mm-hmm. and then slips into bed all naked like and invites uh, Aoyama into bed with her. And before he climbs into bed, though, she stops him and says, I want you to see me. And she's, you know, lying on the bed covered in a sheet. And she slowly pulls the sheet up until she reveals that she has two pretty wicked looking burn scars on her inner thigh, her her right inner thigh. And uh, Aoyama, uh, being a middle-aged man, Presented with a a young lady, uh, burn scars or no, says, no, no, you're beautiful. And she says, I want you to make a promise. I want you to love only me. Which is an impossible request. Uh, Yes. In in that he has a son. Obviously, he loves his son. She does not know about the son at this point, though. True, true. Uh, but there's also his, the memory of his wife. I'm, strictly from Aoyama's point of view. Yes. Uh, um, you know, he's got his son. Uh, he's got the memory of his wife, Ryoko. Um, so rather than rather than clarify the point or anything, you know, things are about to get busy. And I think that he appreciates that fact. So rather than say anything, he just nods. He doesn't. He doesn't promise her anything. He just quietly, as noncommittally as possible, is like, yeah, sure. Um, and so then they have an evening together. I mean, we don't we don't see a lot of that. We do see um, a, a jump cut here where, you know, he climbs into bed and the sheets blossom. And the next thing you know, he's waking up and uh, Asami's gone. And he's pretty dazed and is, you know, calling... Uh, or the phone's ringing because the front desk is calling, asking him, hey, you know, your lady friend left. Are you going to be staying? And uh, he is puzzled, uh, as you would imagine, because he has, by this point, he has uh, proposed marriage. Mm-hmm. The There is no answer yet, of course. Um, and thus begins the final portion of the film. I, actually, there are really two pieces left one is the investigation yeah um where aoyama decides that he's going to uh track her down um he goes first to the uh is it the ballet school first do i have that yeah right yeah he goes yeah. to the ballet school first so he go he goes to the ballet school uh which is a boarded up hellscape <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the stuff from nightmares <laughs> Yeah, where there is just, once he pries his way inside, mind you, like, it's not like, oh, you know, what a ramshackle joint, what a dump. No, 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 you've got to pry boards away to get inside the place. Yeah. And then, unexpectedly, is the ballet teacher, uh, who uh, obviously remembers Asami, and 
he has a pot of glowing red sticks. Yes. Uh, which we can both infer and later see uh, used on uh, Asami as a, a form of, I mean, punishment, question mark, or just um, we- I think weird I, fetishism? I was about to say, I, I, think it, I think it doubles as both. I think he uses it as punishment, but gets off on the punishment. And, I mean, who can blame him? But, <laughs> no, that's terrible. You should never burn ballet girls. Um, <laughs> that's the bumper sticker I have on my car. <laughs> Don't burn ballet girls, says Bo. Um, <laughs> listeners, get on it. Uh, so, during the course of this conversation, like, the the ballet instructor is alternately creepy. Uh, I mean, he's got no feet for beginsies. Yeah, um, yeah, it has no feet. It has these very old-fashioned um, prosthetics, which are basically like a pair of boots, um, kind of leather boots, which are nailed to wooden flat planks to give him balance. Um, which, yeah, that's that in itself is pretty horrible, but his whole sleazy demeanour and the questions he asks specifically when he is questioned about the location of her is, is pretty horrible because he then starts reliving his fantasy from however long ago that was um, through the questions that he asks. Um, and it is a fairly sleazy and uncomfortable scene. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a real creepy dude. Um, and so Aoyama bails out of there and then heads uh, over to um, the bar where uh, uh, Asami claimed to be uh, an employee and finds that that place is, is closed up too. Mm-hmm. That Asami is just leading a trail of destruction behind her. Um, not only is the ballet teacher both creepy and deformed and, and has a penchant for very hot pickup sticks. Uh, we also find that the bar that she, uh, she said she worked in, uh, is closed. The owner has been murdered. Not only was, (laughs) all right. The reason I'm doing this show, Duncan Mm -hmm. is for shit like this. (laughs) So. Aoyama has a conversation with a tenant in the building who's like, oh, yeah, that place closed down. The murder was pretty gruesome. In fact, they found uh, the owner of the place chopped up. But here's what's weird, Duncan. Mm -hmm. There were three extra fingers and a tongue. Yeah. And that don't seem right. No. That math doesn't add up to a person. That's extra. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, but the, the way the guy says it is so casually in conversation that as the audience, and you're reading, you're reading the the subtitles, you could be forgiven for thinking someone has made a mistake in the, the translation here. I'm sure I just read the words, three extra fingers and a tongue. Yeah, three extra fingers and a tongue. The album uh, coming out soon. From <laughs> member, Metal. yeah, member uh, and buy your <laughs> member and buy your bull bumper sticker. Who says don't burn cheerleaders? Uh, no, yeah. no, don't don't burn ballerinas. 
don't burn ballet girls. Get it right. <laughs> Sweeping the nation. I can't believe you don't know it. Um, I'm still getting so you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. It so again, this is the reason I love Asian cinema because it's it gets weird mm-hmm. in a way that I love. Yeah, and it's rare that you see a Western film, Duncan. This is my only point. Wherein a body is found and there are extra pieces. There should be more. There aren't enough. You got to go to audition for stuff like that. Yeah. Um, wait till we get to Tokyo Gore Police. Um, <laughs> Vagina Gator Ahoy. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, obviously, uh, Aoyama's um, curiosity at this point is is more than peaked. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, where is Asami? What is her backstory? What in the hell is going on? Um, then there we get into the, the, the last portion of this film. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the part that most people, I think if you think of audition, you think of the end of this movie and that's kind of where we are. Yeah. I don't, I don't think many people remember much about the first hour and 15 minutes of this movie. Actually, I think a lot of people don't realize that this movie is just under two hours long as well. I think that was a surprising thing for me coming back to watch it. Because um, I just got the Blu-ray in not that long ago, and this was an opportunity to sit down and watch it for the show. I've forgotten that the runtime on it is an hour and fifty-five minutes, which is long um, for, for for you know for a horror movie in general. An hour and fifty-five minutes is long, but when you realise that really the first hour and ten minutes are fairly straightforward, sort of Japanese kind of romance drama. Um, but you need to, like you said, the word slow burn. You need to really kind of get through that to get to the end. The ending works so much better once you've been through that. Yeah, yeah. It and it's it's not wasted time. I you no. know I I don't think either of us are, are trying to give that impression. It is it is there to support the events of the end of this movie, and without it, the end doesn't land the way it does. Yeah, I, I imagine uh, that there would have been quite a lot of people who would have sat down to watch Audition circa 2002-2003 after hearing many people say this is, you know, a terrifying movie and switching it off after half an hour just going, I must have picked up the wrong movie. You know what I mean? This is not, what? This is not the the movie that's terrifying. It's a a guy trying to find love. So, um, yeah, while, while he is investigating the 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 what's going on with the the three fingers and the extra tongue um someone has broken into his house yeah and swipes some whiskey mm-hmm. and murders a dog which i'm not happy about but i you know i feel a bit of kinship um, <laughs> it was a nice dog it wasn't it a, wasn't, a, wasn't a usual horror movie dog which is barking and yapping all the time this was a friendly little pooch yeah um unfortunately murdered uh terribly um and gleefully one might add uh so uh our good man aoyama comes home and man i'll tell you here's one thing i love about our our protagonist in this film that man knows a dinner when he sees it and that dinner is a pack of smokes and scotch um talk, talk about western influence um i love it so, 
there are a couple occasions throughout the movie where he just sits down like somebody will be eating around him or whatever and he's just like no i'm good i got what i need here i got i got a pack of marlboro lights and whiskey we're good <laughs> aoyama is a-okay if you know what i mean um, <laughs> <laughs> so he he starts sipping on uh his whiskey and uh you know unpacking the events of the day he's had a day and starts to get a little woozy uh as you do and the next thing you know he's laid out on the floor mm-hmm. and as he falls we are treated to a series of images yeah that become increasingly horrific <laughs> so yeah, we have that he has what can only be described as either hallucinations or dreams at first, where events have already events that we've already seen in the movie are played out differently. So conversations are completely different from what they were fifteen, twenty, you know, forty minutes ago in the movie. So the conversation during the date is completely different, and it focuses on basically her abuse at the hands of not only her parents or, or relatives, sorry, um, but the, the ballet teacher, which we also get a flashback of as well. Um, and just when you kind of think, right, that's right. That he's obviously had some, something's been, his drink's been spiked, basically. He's okay now, we're coming back. <clears throat> that's, that's when things start to go a bit weird. Um, and yeah, I mean... Okay, so you also get in a di- and we'll we'll get to the the harshness, mm-hmm. the real the real stuff here in a second. But you also get a repeat of the scene where they met for uh for dinner. Yes. And in this version instead of hey my family's okay, it's a story of molestation and abuse. Yes. And it becomes a, in in this dreamlike already dreamlike scenario you start to have all this revision of <laughs> the rest of the movie. Yes. And, and herein lies the genius of Miyiki. Mm-hmm. Um, you start to wonder at this point, what's real, what's not, etc. You Then we see not only um, <laughs> the, the, the revisionist history of, of Asami, but you also get, uh, the revelation of what's in the bag. Yeah, because he, he finds himself in one of his visions actually in her apartment. Um, and he kind of he, he trips over the bag almost, and the bag opens, and inside the bag there is a cuddly toy. Yep, yep, just a big old cuddly bar. And that is all. Nothing to see here. Let's right. move on. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, let's put That's that. That's audition. <laughs> <laughs> see if that. See if that actually did happen. Um, I, I, I. That could just be as horrific. Actually, see that. Oh, I don't know. As yeah. Um, there was. A, a, well, you said it earlier on. That it was a, a person-sized bag. Yeah, and and, and out comes the person and. One assumes, uh, because of the narrative that the the, the film has uh, portrayed, that this is um, this was her agent. Yes, 
um, the the one that she later claims to have never met. And he is, Duncan appropriately enough, missing uh, a few fingers mm-hmm. to the tune of three. Yes. And has no tongue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Aoyama is distracted from this sight by the sound of retching. Yes, and the kitchen. Yeah, uh, where all good meals are prepared, Duncan. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that our uh, our, our, our very lovely uh, Asami is vomiting into a bowl. Which then she not so carefully brings... By the way, some mops are needed in this place. Because she <laughs> is a little freewheeling with that bowl, if you ask me. <laughs> but... She, she places the bowl in front of her uh, her captive, who uh, immediately starts eating and mumbling good. Uh, that's awful. That it, is horrifying. Yeah, it's w- one of the most... Well, up until this point, it's the most stomach-turning scene of the movie. Um, yeah, there's, there's like he's missing fingers, he's missing a tongue, he's missing both his feet, and he's missing a hand. Um, his hair is like it's it's kind of partially been torn out in certain areas and grown quite long in other areas. And the man looks like he's aged horribly um, in a short period of time. That way that people look like after you know after they have a heart attack or you know a very close relative or a loved one passes suddenly um that way where you you know the age of someone can perceivably like jump up 10 15 potentially 20 years on someone's face alone um and yeah it is it's a horrific scene and um our, 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 our man here is to say that he is repulsed and horrified is an understatement um but this is still just a like a vision, so to speak. And he, at first, at first, you you may be led to believe that maybe he's having some sort of heart attack because he kind of grabs his chest and he falls over again. And we find out that that's all been a vision, and he's still in his house, lying on the ground after drinking his scotch, which has been laced with what we find out. Um, almost immediately is a drug which paralyzes your body completely but leaves all your nerve endings working completely well in fact if anything it heightens them because you're paralyzed yeah and it's really all you got to think about um so yeah so asami shows up uh with a needle and a butcher's vest yeah uh, yeah it's a kind of cross between a corset and a butcher's apron and i'm just gonna (laughs) say i'm just gonna say sexy as all fuck uh until we realize what's in the bag. Yeah, it's. I was kind of hoping for you know jump leads, a car battery, uh, some some Vaseline and some strawberries, um, but turns out that's not what she had planned either. Yeah, you're you're off a little bit. If you had said piano wire and acupuncture needles, <laughs> the most <laughs> gnarly looking acupuncture needles. Yes, I've ever seen. They basically they don't look. They look slightly thicker than your average acupuncture needle, and they look a little bit more robust, a bit more solid, not a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> right, and it doesn't help. Uh, she also uh, injects his tongue mm-hmm. with more of this uh, paralytic agent, just to make sure. Like, we don't want anybody getting up here. 
um you know it's it's time for fun and the the son by the way just to to make it clear the son is away with his uh his friends for the weekend yes so uh we've got we've got some time some quality time to uh abuse the body uh you know in an almost cronenbergian fashion very much so yeah uh so uh asami then goes the acupuncture route at first mm mm-hmm. mhm and is finding the most painful places to place the acupuncture needles. When you when you talk about uh, acupuncture needles, I don't think you have to look much past Miike, uh, who also enjoyed those and employed those in imprint. Yes. Uh, which I'm sure at some point down the road we will discuss <laughs> that little gem. <laughs> <laughs> and an imprint is really me, Kay, saying you thought audition was bad. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and like I, I love the subversiveness of this scene because acupuncture. If 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 you were explaining to someone who did not know what acupuncture was, if an alien landed tomorrow and you said that human beings take a series of very thin needles which they then stick into people's bodies and locations or pressure points around the body. And just left it at that, you would be forgiven for believing that was a sort of torture. If the person then said, well, in Eastern medicine, and now apparently in Western medicine, um, if they're placed in certain parts of the body, it is believed that this um, is good for you, um, can cure ailments, can make you feel better, uh, the, the aliens would probably laugh at you because it still sounds barbaric. And what I love about this is that Miyake plays into that base instinct. What is acupuncture? And what happens if it was put in areas that would hurt? Which she does systematically. And it's not that she just puts like needles like for a start into his stomach, which is apparently a very painful area to get done. She then pulls herself up his body, basically just tearing at them. Which, at first I thought, was probably the most horrible thing you could do to this guy. Turns out this was her just warming... It's foreplay. Yeah, it really is, because the next lot of needles go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Under the eyes, she says, is where it's particularly painful. And then she flicks them when they're in with her hand, which is... Oh, the worst, Duncan, the worst. Oh, God, the worst. Is when she's... uh, pushing the needles into his his belly and this continues as she you know goes up the old treasure trail to the eyes um but she as she's doing it she makes this playful little sound when she's saying deeper and it's like yeah it is oh stop it just knock it off. Turns out the <laughs> Japanese word for deeper is terrifying. <laughs> um, it's, right. even, it's even more terrifying when it's spoken very quickly and back to back with the word deeper, 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 deeper. Um, yeah, it's... It, <laughs> it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's... It's bad. <laughs> yeah, your skin will crawl, the hair on the back of your neck will stand out, you may start breaking out in a slightly cold sweat and feel a bit queasy. Yeah, and it's not the worst thing in the scene. No, she's, she's, she's uh, like you say, she's just getting started because she then, through a conversation with him, basically says, you know, she starts throwing the accusations that, you know, you audition all these girls, you sleep with them, and then you, you're never going to call them back. You don't care about them. They're disposable to, to you. 
Um, so she's now worked out exactly kind of what has happened. Maybe not to the full extent, but she's very much aware of what's happening. She also knows that he has a son. Um, she says, you told me you would only ever love me. However, you have the son you love. And he basically says, you know, you don't touch my son. Um, to which she then uh, says, you know, you know, you could basically leave me. Well, you know, you can't leave me if you don't have your feet. Which is true. Yeah. It's, it's, it make, well, it's not that's not solely true. It just makes it more complicated. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a real misery logic that she's applying here, but yeah, it's it, she's not wrong. It does nope. make it hard. It does. It, it makes it more difficult. Yeah, for sure. And uh, one thing I want to go back to very briefly, I just want to mention this so we have the context for it when we talk about this later. During the course of his uh, his visions, one of the more bizarre ones that that happens right before we get guy in the bag and it's so easy to be distracted by guy in the bag duncan yeah uh, but but he also has a very telling series of visions of the women in his life both yes both ryoko his wife uh his his deceased wife telling him you know not to trust this woman mm-hmm we also have a, a scene with his, uh, essentially his secretary, his assistant, mm-hmm. um, who throughout the course of the movie has been dropping all kinds of hints um, about like, hey, I'm about to get married. What do you think about that? And mm-hmm. that she's lingering a little bit. And, and she obviously has feelings for him. Once again, this Smitten Kitten. Uh, there are two Smitten Kittens. Unfortunately, they are not smitten with each other. No, it's... Um, and and most disturbing of all, as he's having these visions, it it becomes the schoolgirl girlfriend of his son, yeah. giving him a blowjob and talking about how much she loves it. Yeah, and to be to be fair, he is by uh, that particular image genuinely does repulse him because he pushes her away. But yes, we yes, we yes, yes. intercut that with scenes of the ballet teacher masturbating underneath his top, which. That guy was already quite seedy and creepy as is. That scene didn't help that image. Um, and then we... Didn't it? <laughs> well... <laughs> no, boy, it did not help. Um, okay. okay, you're right. But but we then see um, a kind of modified version of a garrote, um, which is used, which is made out of kind of piano wire, um, which she uses to... And a scene that we see... Um, she the the ballet teacher is playing piano. She walks up behind them, puts the <clears throat> basically creates like a, a noose knot around them with this garrote, and uh, kind of tells them that the wire is really good; it can even cut through bone with ease. Um, and while he's still playing the piano, she completely decapitates him. Yeah, it turns out it is pretty easy. Yeah, and what's that that obviously you think well, that's, that's in a dream that's a dream he was having a crazy crazy dream on this hallucinogenic paralytic sort of drug that has been injected into his body turns out she has the, the, the same instrument in her bag with her which is handy comes prepared I admire that in a woman yep and um, yeah she kind of takes it in her own hands that she's, she's just basically going to get rid of his feet because like we said earlier on very difficult to go anywhere without feet yeah the probably my favorite shot of this whole sequence is 
a, a shot from outside his apartment. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. Where you see her sawing the foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, it's his left foot. And she's sawing it with this piano wire, wire like a lumberjack, where you're kind of cranking left, then right. Yeah. And just up and down like pistons until the le- until the foot just comes off. Mm-hmm. And then she tosses it away. Yeah. And it smacks against the glass of the sliding door that we're seeing uh, the scene from, from beyond. Mm-hmm. Leaving a bloody stain on the window, on the glass. And then she just goes to work on foot number two. I would be surprised if... And I, now, I obviously know that Audition is based on a novel, and I don't know if this particular scene happens in the novel, but I would be even more surprised if the person that wrote this novel had never read Misery. Because this is kind of what this scene feels like. It's like misery, but like Asian misery. Um, so, right, which which means gorier and and unflinching. Yeah, and and, and and American misery. James can can still walk with the aid of a walking stick. And Asian misery, you're going to have to get those leather sock things with a bit of wood nailed to the bottom to walk around with because you know that shit comes off. <laughs> with a bit of wood yes indeed yeah. uh so before uh she can conjugate the verb so to speak and uh and take the other foot um in comes uh aoyama's son mm-hmm. uh shigehiko and well pronounced by the way it's the best i can do with my my thick american tongue <laughs> and so uh asami and uh shigehiko um sort of see each other yeah. and he's like what the hell's going on and she starts chasing him with mace yeah, well th- th- she the the first scene we see is her behind him holding something he turns around and makes eye contact basically says who are you and then uh we find out well once again miyaki plays with the audience by having our, our central character wake up from what he thinks as a dream, he's back in bed at the point where he had proposed, um, and he is obviously a bit startled. It's a bad dream. He reaches down, his feet are still there, so that's a good sign. Um, goes to wash his hands and face. She comes and asks him if he's okay. He goes back through to the bed and lies down with her, and she basically says, I can't believe that you asked me. Um, of all the people you auditioned, you know, uh, that could get this job. I'm the one that gets to live out my my real dreams. Um, She, of course, says yes. Um, And he kind of, on some level, is still unsettled, but kind of lets his guard down. And when he closes his eyes, we jump right back to the scene that we were just at. And she is behind um, the sun with, like you said, a can of mace. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a Looney Tunes chase through the house. Uh, not quite as manic, but it's it's a little jarring uh, yep. for the film. But uh, uh, Shigehiko gets to the top of the stairs. She's chasing him, and he just gives her the good old-fashioned boot in the gut. Yep. And she goes flying down the stairs, mm-hmm. lands with a crack, Yeah, and is paralyzed. Much yeah. like uh, our good man Aoyama, um, and the movie basically ends with this this repetition of the lines about um, 
that life is is about pain mm-hmm. uh and they lock eyes and our final image is of uh presumably asami as a young girl uh in in a rather ramshackle uh room uh putting on her uh, her ballet shoes mm-hmm. a very a very lovely image but the belching uh smokestack outside yeah. Uh, thank you, the police, for that image. Um, I, I, I'm gonna. Here's my goal: is to work a synchronicity quote into every show. Oh my um, god. <laughs> so yeah, and the, and that wraps up the movie. Mm-hmm. That you know, uh, Asami is uh, presumably dead at the very least, paralyzed, but probably dead. Uh, Aoyama is um, a has some splaining to do, and. Yeah also you know is never going to be the same one presumes and yeah and roll credits man that's miyuki saying good night y'all on on maybe again a a movie that people weren't prepared to see no um so god bless that man yeah he's uh, yeah that movie when he made that movie, I don't think for one second he expected it to have the impact it did. Um, and the reason it had the impact is no one in the West had seen anything like this before. Like, legitimately, there, you know, I mentioned movies earlier on which are notorious, video nasties in the UK, which were banned for their graphic content. No one had ever seen anything like Audition before. And it it, it it made it made critics stumble and like I am just now to try and find words to explain what they had seen. <laughs> Audition was the first film from Takashi Miyiki to gain notoriety in the horror community, but it wasn't the last. And it won't be the last time he appears on this show, so let's get to know the man who gave us the vomit in a bowl scene a little better. Miki is a real working director, by which I mean he works a lot. He generally directs two to three movies a year, and his IMDb page currently lists 99 different features Miki directed. One more, and he gets his own severed foot. His output is remarkable, not only for its volume, but for its quality and its diversity. He's directed family-friendly films like The Great Yokai War and period epics like 13 Assassins, a wonderful homage to the samurai films of Kurosawa that you'll hear us talk about on this show. But if you're listening here, you probably know him best from films like Audition and Ichi the Killer and Visitor Q, which we will definitely be talking about on this show in the future. Miki was born in Osaka, a working-class town, the son of a welter and a seamstress, dreaming of becoming a professional motorbike racer. By his own admission, Miki was a poor student. In fact, he claims the only reason he eventually attended the Yokohama Vocational School of Broadcast and Film was because there was no entrance exam. He was notoriously absent from his classes, despite having found a mentor in the school's dean, Shohei Imamura, a distinguished filmmaker in his own right. Still, Miike continued to fail upward, and when a television production studio came looking for an unpaid assistant, Miike was nominated and began his career in television and film production. He worked in television for almost a decade until he started serving as assistant director for features, including some helmed by his former mentor, Imamura. 
It's important to add one more piece of context in the story of Takashi Miyiki. During his career, the Japanese film industry changed dramatically. The age of home video arrived, and the studio system that dominated Japan began to feel the pinch. We'll talk more about the Japanese studios in the future, but the important thing to take away is that the studios became less a source of financing and more a source of distribution. Private companies began making movies for the exploding home markets, and these films, unencumbered by the censorship and concretized habits of the studio system, explored all sorts of taboos, especially those of violence and sexuality. Enter Takashi Miiki again. With Miiki established in the film community, he was free to direct these straight-to-video or B-cinema films. It wasn't until audition, though, that Miiki truly broke out on an international stage. The frank depiction of violence made it feel transgressive, and its dreamlike narrative continues to be a source of discussion. It's no surprise Miiki mentions David Lynch as a favorite Western director. It's nearly impossible to see all of Miiki's work, but much of it is truly worth your time. Miiki is subversive when he chooses, grandly traditional other times, but he's always fascinating. For now, let's get back to Audition where we look at two interpretations of the movie, one of which implies that the events that we're so familiar with in Audition never even happened. Okay, so the movie is watched. And I, I know for me personally, Duncan, when the first time I saw this movie, I came away, I think like everyone does, scratching my head a little bit, but also, you know, confounded and repulsed and intrigued. By the mm -hmm. imagery. You know, the thing that people, I think, walk away from this movie with is vomit in the bowl, feet cut off. Peaky, peaky, peaky. And. I love the fact you creep yourself out making that noise. It's, yeah, it's the worst. Uh, it, it, like, that's not what you want to hear when you're being tortured. Because somebody's no. having a good time, and it ain't you. Yeah. Um. But I don't know that I understood what I saw. And and we're not going to do this on with every movie on the show. Like like I said, we're doing Tokyo Gore Police pretty soon and we're not <laughs> we're not breaking that down in the same way. But I'm You're not covering all the subtext. I, I'm going to try. Uh cuz Gator Vagina is or Vagina Gator um is something that deserves some 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 attention. Um mm -hmm. uh, but what was, I'm, I'm curious, like, what is your interpretation of this movie? What do you think this movie is really, what it's about, what it's saying, how it's saying it? Um, the, the, there's two main points I've, uh, through time, I have kind of settled on through watching Audition. Um, and, the, I mean, one of the big things, and we've mentioned it already, is there are huge cultural differences Um even more so in Japan than there are just in countries that are out, you know, in the East. Uh, Japan being kind of an isolated island, which had next to no contact with the West until really about the 1800s. Um, so for, from a cultural point of view, they're a very insular society, you know, really kind of almost on some level untouched by, by outside influences. And their culture has very much remained that way. Um, it's, it's certainly morphed and changed quite a bit since the, the Second World War. Um, 
but but like from from a historical point of view, Japan is still very much a very unique place in the world that kind of operates in its own little bubble um, from from the rest of from from the you know the rest of the people in the world. Um, and one one of the things that kind of plays into in fact the two things I think play heavily into this are. The, the first being the the place of women in their society, and it, there's no fluke in this movie that the word docile is used to describe women. The the perfect Japanese woman to a successful Japanese businessman is you know a woman who will speak when she is spoken to, who is very subservient, who looks after the house, who will make sure dinner is ready, keep her man happy, and that you know raise the kids. That is. That is basically the the perfect image of women in their country, and that is slowly changing, but it's it has taken a while. So the fact that Miyake kind of throws that on its head by making the woman not not only sexually aggressive, and that she instigates the sexual contact that they have earlier in the movie as well, you know. Um, he doesn't necessarily, he's already planning for things which could be seen as dates. You know, we'll go here and we can go to coffee, you know, at the edge of the pier and this is nice and this is nice. And she is the, the sexually aggressive person, is, you know, against caste for, for you know, Japanese society. The fact that that goes one step further and she is... Um, A murderous monster? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, on top of that, who gets joy out of the the torture and murder of men? When you add that to it as well, from from a from a societal point of view, I imagine, like I said before, that has a, a stronger impact in that country. It's still fairly terrifying to watch, um, because even even in the West, we have this image of you know men being naturally stronger, um, and you know for for all there is equality, there is still not necessarily full equality in the West for women. Um, so, so there is this idea of that in the background. The second thing I would say is the the idea of basically guilt and shame, which is a uh, emotions are very powerful in Japanese culture, um, and that that carries on. And this seems like a history lesson, but um, that carries on from from feudal days in Japan. Um, the idea of shame, and it carries, it has carried through from the samurai ca- uh, class who would uh, commit uh, seppuku um, or suicide if they if they were dishonoured, and that carries through into yakuza culture as well. Um, if you are, you know, if you dishonour your your leader, your boss, um, you will have appendages removed. Um, so that's also part of their culture. But things like grief, I, I mean, there's. In Japan, they have one of the highest suicide rates in the entire world, and that's because it's seen as an out. If you're if you're unhappy, if you're miserable, if you haven't achieved what you want to achieve, kill yourself. Um, and that is a message that is you know has been passed down, and it's very much rooted in there. So this idea of guilt, um, not only at the fact that he is he is seeking love after the death of the woman he 
was married to and, and genuinely did love. Um, but the fact that he's done this in a kind of deceitful manner as well, I think plays quite heavy on that character and also plays quite heavily into a lot of the dream sequences later on. Um, so if you look at it from, from that point of view, I think the movie is kind of... My, my personal interpretation, before even starting to go into the way it's shot and the way the dreams are, are played out in this movie, or the fact that we have a, a you know a main female character who has been molested and abused, so would yeah, it, it was no great jump for us to think that she would be damaged as a person. I know that may be underselling it. Um, I think it kind of plays with Japanese ideas of you know of kind of deep emotions and and the perceived place of you know that here is this girl who on paper is the perfect pick for him because she is so downtrodden and she doesn't have an idea of self-worth on the page um she would be the perfect docile japanese wife um but when you turn it on its head um she is everything which would be considered you know the exact opposite she is very strong of identity she is you know very independent and then you just spice that on the top with the fact that she is you know a killer um I think that's I, I that's what I take away from it. Like those are the main points I take. That's where I think it's rooted in. Um, and like I said, I've never read the novel, so I don't know if the novel makes more of a, a you know, a, a, makes more of a play for that, or if there's something else which loses its translation and its journey to cinema. But on its fundamental basics, that's where I see the movie coming from. Um, well, let me let me pepper the. Uh the the delicious salsa of interpretation you've laid down for us. Uh, I do I do like peppered salsa. Yeah, well, who doesn't? It's the most delicious of all salsas. Um, Vomited up peppered salsa. Mm. It is contextually appropriate to this conversation <laughs> as well. Uh, so I I wish I could take credit for this interpretation. I can't. This was someone much smarter than I uh, who who brought this up. But I I I think it's legit. Um, the interpretation that I tend to agree most with is that the events that we most remember from this movie don't ever really happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that the movie is much like you said, the movie is a, a bit of a morality play that revolves around the idea of guilt. Yeah. So, uh, Aoyama, and and this, uh, some of this ties into the way the movie is shot because the first say let's say hour up until you get to the the hotel room mm-hmm. um is shot in a very realistic fashion using a lot of incandescent bright lighting and once you get into the more dreamy sequences like for example the scene in the motel room where she first exposes herself uh to Aoyama it it starts to bathe in blue, yes, which is the color that is associated with uh, Ryoko and her deathbed, and that the jump cuts that we see in the earlier uh, diner scene are meant to 
emphasize the the questions being asked and the answers that you're getting. You know, the story about, no, my family's okay. We don't, you know, we don't talk every day, but we got, a, you know, a, a, a normal thing going on. And that uh, as as we get into the more exaggerated moments of the film, that these are manifestations of Aoyama's guilt at lying to Asami, replacing Ryoko, um, the, the feelings that he has about the relationship with his assistant, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, he clearly had sex with her and then never called her again, at least not for that reason. Um, as well as this, you know, kind of shameful attraction to, uh, his son's girlfriend and that we're getting all of this. So all these images of the man in the bag and, and, uh, Asami, um, you know, paralyzing him, you know, dismembering him, uh, alive and so forth is purely an allegorical thing that it is, uh, to get super deep, Duncan, Get ready. Buckle in. We're about to dive. <laughs> so there is a Jungian idea of the animus and anima mm-hmm. where the, you know, animus is the, the male perception of self and the anima is the female perception of self within the Japanese culture. The anima is within a male point of view is considered unwanted, unneeded, um, a bit of a crutch, um, something to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that this is the expression and like, like Ayama basically constructs, uh, his vision of Asami by reading this essay, right. And seeing the headshot. And then yeah. as the film goes on, he has constructed this other version of Asami to make her monstrous so that his behavior, his lying to her, and being dishonest with her. And in theory, if you kind of follow this interpretation has agreed to marry a woman that he has begun a relationship with on the basis of dishonesty and lies. And so the last look that they share and the last lines are about the paralysis of that relationship mm-hmm. that they cannot, they cannot continue They are, They are always going to be frozen in a place where neither of them can tell the other, the truth. Um, well, Aoyama is never going to tell the full truth. And so therefore he must suspect mm-hmm. that Asami is also being dishonest with him. Um, it is, it is in some ways kind of an unsatisfying interpretation in mm-hmm. that it then makes the events of the latter half of the movie, the, the events that we all remember so well, um, a thing of the imagination, uh, but on another level, I really like that interpretation. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's very... I, I mean, I, I some of my favourite movies incorporate heavy amounts of dream logic. And I, there is, you are correct in saying there is a, like a, a distinct blue wash that, that definitely happens over the last third of this movie um, and becomes very prominent. And I mean, on some level, it would make sense... Assuming that the catalyst point was the point in which he proposed and slept with her. Yeah. And that seems to be, according to this interpretation, where the break is. Yeah. 
Because um, he, he, like, he wakes up and obviously he is still fine when he goes back to bed and she accepts his marriage proposal and then he falls back asleep. That's when he's transported back to the point that his son is in the house. So the bit yeah. that we jump out. So yeah, that, on, on that level, it would make quite a bit of sense. Yeah. And the the other thing that Miyuki does that is insidious, if this is the case, if this is the, the, the real meaning of the film, is that he begins to mix... Like most of the stuff that you see, you see in blue initially is very dreamlike, mm-hmm. and the reality uh, are the scenes that are shot more realistically and with different lighting and and much steadier shots and all that stuff, all the torture scenes and whatnot. That we we kind of <laughs> cross the divide at a certain point where the more realistic the scene is shot, the more likely it is to not be real. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things like, okay, are you reading too much into this movie? I, in this case, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that you can, you can argue, argue interpretation of what's real, what's not. And, and I, I think there are good arguments to be had on both sides of this, which is one of the reasons I think that audition is so strong mm-hmm. is that it does allow for alternate interpretation and not you know, like there's plenty of of Asian horror cinema that I love because it's a good ghost story or yes. something. And Audition is one of those movies that doesn't ste- steep itself in folklore like a lot of those films do, but instead seems to be this very subversive, aggressive movie about patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 you know, for that reason, I think it's. It's an important movie in Eastern cinema and in horror cinema because, it, you know, as I mentioned to you, th- this reminds me a bit of Enemy in a way, uh, viewing it through this interpretive lens. Yes. And I, I there's something about that that I really like. I really respond to it. Um, and plus, there's, you know, um, <laughs> thrown in. <laughs> so, good, stop it. Um, that like the, the shocking imagery does its job. And then once you start to unpack the movie, there's a ton there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it, it it's definitely a movie that rewards you for not just repeat viewings, but very active viewings, you know, like, uh, it, it's there, there are passive movies for sure that we will talk about on this show. I know I keep mentioning Tokyo Gore police, but let's be honest, you can kind of turn your brain off for much of that movie. Um, yeah. and, and it's still a hoot, but this is a movie I think that, that begs a little bit more of a discerning viewing. Um, but it's great. It's great. I really, yeah, I mean, and, and we've, and the thing is not even, I mean, we're talking all these things like, I think one of the strongest suits as well is the cinematography. I think the cinematography, the way certain shots are placed, the camera placement in certain shots, especially during dream sequences, um, is equally unsettling. Um, we have sequences where the camera is basically at ground level moving up, like from the point of view when he trips over the the the, the burlap sack um, and then, you know, the camera is at his angle looking down to see what comes out the bag and then when he starts to see that the camera kind of switches around to be almost at like level of where the man crawling out of the bag would be 
um, looking back at him as he crawls back in disgust and horror, which is very, it's very clever. Some of the, the, the angles and uses, the colour palette of the movie as well, I think is incredible. I think the score, there's no part in this movie at all where the score is your standard horror affair. There's no wee, wee, wee when nasty things are happening <laughs> at all. It is surprisingly serene when she is making her tiki tiki noise. Stop or it. or um, <laughs> when she's sawing off a foot. There is no dramatic Hollywood in kind of <laughs> in kind of quotation marks. Um scoring at all to this movie. It is all very subtle. It's it's almost like we said, the kinda kinda romantic almost like a like a whimsical romantic comedy kind of styled score, which is throughout this entire movie. And at no point um like changes into a level which uh, is there to emphasise the horror that's going through. If anything it works as as almost a contrast to what we're seeing on the screen, which on some level actually makes it even more unsettling. Um, it's, a, it's an absolutely incredible movie um, from, you know, a director who had done quite a few movies before then, who had his own film school. He owned his own film school by the time he was teaching film theory by the time he made uh, Audition. But... Yeah, like you said, a name that is more likely going to appear quite a lot on your your show moving forward, whether it's to compare other movie directors to or other movies to or even scenes of horror to. But this is not the only time the great man touches the horror genre. He kind of spends the majority of his career here and still does. Um, he's still putting out movies to the tune of about two or three a year, um, and that has been consistent since about 1997. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of fun to mine. And I, I, I will say, and um, I think we are potentially on the same page with this one. I don't think we've ever properly talked talked about it, but he pays kind of heavy homage to Akira Kurosawa. Um, and his his kind of version of Seven Samurais, which is Thirteen Samurais, uh, Thirteen Assassins, sir. Thirteen Assassins, sorry. Oh, it's so uh, good. Which I, I genuinely think is is one of the greatest movies within that genre of cinema. I think is absolutely incredible, um, and it goes to show the the strength of his ability as a director to be able to jump in and out of genres and carry things over because when the blood kicks off in that movie is very much Mickey um, from, from horror movies and there are scenes in it which are pure audition styled scenes where characters have been tortured by a malicious emperor's stepson using arrows and he, there is actually an audition scene when I think about it in that movie where he has chopped off the arms and legs of a woman and removed her tongue and she has to use oh, yeah. <laughs> her mouth and a and a, a a brush to write out the words total massacre to tell someone basically what happened to her family and if that is not direct influence from his movie audition i don't know what the fuck is yeah. he's an incredible director he yeah he he's he's amazing i think 13 assassins is one of the few movies that 
actually can hold a candle to some of the Kurosawa, uh, you know, samurai epics. Yeah. It, like, it's that good, and everyone should watch it. Uh, we will certainly be talking about movies like Visitor Q and Ichi the Killer. Oh, and, yes. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, oh, lactation, get ready for it. Um, <laughs> Visitor Q is a, an effed up movie. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> Miki seems to love to shock, and I, I think, yeah, it's no, it, it, I mentioned this in, in one of the other segments, but he is certainly a fan of, uh, of David Lynch. And, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. There, you can see that in in color usage and some of the the more extreme and vile imagery. Uh, vile. I am not passing judgments with that term, but <laughs> let, let's face it: you're not going to put your mom in front of audition and say, "You know what? I know it's Thanksgiving, but we should watch a movie." <laughs> um, I'll be interested to see if anyone claims on your show uh, to want to sit down and go through the happiness of the Katakuras. Um, that's which right. is just batshit crazy. I mean, that's that is the the epitome of batshit horror comedy. Yeah, and I think that and Visitor Q make a great double feature. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. But uh, we'll we'll get into that down the line. Uh, Duncan, final thoughts on audition before we uh, we call her a day. Um, I, I genuinely think. I mean, there are. Japanese horror cinema has existed... Japanese horror stories have existed probably longer than any other culture still existing on this planet. More than 50 years, at least. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's how long America's been on the earth. Um, (laughs) No, I mean, mean, just in general, their ghost stories go back thousands of years as a society and culture. And it is very ingrained in their culture that when the advent of cinema comes along the ability to actually make movies uh, some of their ghost stories which i i hopefully will be back um on the show to discuss um are incredible you know haunting weird strange poetic and have been emulated and copied throughout um their horror cinema kind of went off the map really um towards the, the kind of 80s and early 90s. There are a few, but not as many. And then business started picking up in the 90s and the rest of the world didn't know about it. They, they weren't aware. They knew the big ones. Uh, they knew movies like Rashomon um, or Kuroneko, but they, they didn't really know what was going on in that co- country until Audition landed. And... It sets a, a scarily high benchmark that I genuinely feel very few Japanese horror movies had reached before or have reached since. Um, and I can't stress enough that the poll that you put up on the page, I said to you in conversation, I think it's almost too obvious to put Audition as that pick because you just kind of think that you need to play your horror card somewhere else um, and go for something not as obvious as Audition. I've seen the movie twice in the last week and prep for this show as, you know, I hadn't seen it in about five years and it still holds exactly the same place and exactly the same impact and makes me feel exactly the same way as it did when I caught the movie back in 2001. Um, incredible piece of horror cinema. Influential and... Yeah, I've been honoured to come on this uh, opening show for for this podcast and get the opportunity to talk about it. 
Excellent. Well, it is our responsibility, nay duty, Duncan, uh, which gives me an excuse to use the word duty, um, <laughs> to rank the films. And let me let me tell our audience something real quick. We're not going to rank every movie we ever do on the show because at some point that becomes unwieldy. But in the early goings, it's fun to uh, to just say, you know what? What's the best Asian horror film of all time? We have it easy, Duncan. Our options are audition or nothing. <laughs> well, it's audition, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that's the direction I'm leaning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for episode one, we will we will state for the record in a purely scientific poll. Audition is the best Asian horror film of all time. Mm-hmm. Now, next week, we're going to be doing another movie, and th- that may change. But as of right now, this moment, according to Hero Hero Go Show, Audition, your number one Asian horror film. Um, so, Duncan, thank you so much uh, for, for being with us. Again, uh, hit us with where you can be found. Um, I do several different podcasts. You can check them out. My main one is the podcast Under the Stairs. Uh, the website is tputzcast, that's T-P, uh, yeah, T-P-U-T-S, you threw me off earlier on, cast.com. Um, we're on iTunes, you can also check us out on Stitcher, and we're part of the Legion Podcast Network, where you can check out every other show pretty much that I do, which covers Chronicle, which is a European exclusive horror um, podcast. Uh, each season looks at a particular subgenre. The first season has just finished. It's the perfect time to binge all six episodes, which will take you about two hours tops. It's only 20 minutes an episode. Um, so yeah, go and check out that show. I also have the great pleasure of doing a show with uh, the lovable Rapscallion in charge of Hero Hero Ghost Show. Uh, you can check it myself and Bo. Um, uh, less... Uh, pleasant to each other and more confrontational as we do battle on the field of, uh, of cinema and Duncan and Bo come correct, which is also um, an exclusive podcast on the Legion podcast network. Excellent. Thank you so much, sir. Um, now sit there uncomfortably as I wrap up. Uh, so this was audition uh, directed by Takashi Miiki. And here's everyone's soon to be favorite part of the show in which I give you a couple of cast notes. Uh, including the names of the actors. So, uh, you, <laughs> in the role of Aoyama, we have Ryu Ishibashi. Uh, in the role of Asami, we have Aihi Shiina, uh, which is probably not even close. And, uh, and finally, uh, the friend Yoshikawa is played by Jun Kunibara. Um, so, that is uh, the first film for Hero Hero Go Show. Thank you so much for joining us here on the premiere episode. Uh, we had some laughs. We learned some things. And most importantly, we talked about eyeball acupuncture. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at Yo- the uh, Yoshihiro Nishimura film, Tokyo Gore Police, with Missy Marchant of the Black Anis Podcast. If you have uh, questions or comments... Please send them over via the email at herohero at legionpodcasts.com. Uh, join the discussion that we have about uh, these films, as well as my own personal selection of J-pop and J-rock, uh, which has been contributed to by others on the uh, the group page. 
Uh, you can find all that over at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hero hero ghost show. Uh, most importantly, if you enjoyed the show, please hop over to iTunes, leave a rating review, and hey, why not tell a friend? It makes a world of difference and keeps the juices flowing to keep providing you, the listener, with the best show I possibly can bring you. Uh, thanks again for listening. And now, here is as much Shonen Knife as I can legally play for you. Good night. Good night.